Hello all, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, and welcome to the Goddess Project Podcast. If you are new to this podcast, thank you for joining me. Actually, if you're new to this podcast, just a um a note up front that we're gonna talk, we're gonna be talking a lot about blood and bleeding and sacrifice. So that is in the title, but I'm not sure if you're prepared for all the ooey gooeyness that we're gonna talk about. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while and you're either listening on Spotify or Apple or wherever or watching on YouTube, I want to say thank you. Hello. Welcome back. I'm very excited to share with you this episode. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. I am an ancient historian. My PhD is in ancient Greece and Rome, particularly with focus on the goddess Artemis. And I wrote a book called She Who Hunts, How Artemis Changed the World. So if you're interested in Artemis, we're going to be talking about a couple of her bloody rites or bloody rites of passages today. Um, But if you're interested in more about her and more about um, her worship, then uh, please purchase my book anywhere where you buy books. And I also have a workshop a seminar, a six weeks workshop coming up through the Artemis Research Center, which is my learning center. Um, and it's a it's an episode, it's an episode. Hello. It's an a workshop, six weeks workshop on embodying the goddess Artemis and learning about ancient traditions, ancient worship for her, but also what do we do about that? How do we how do we practice what we're learning? And so if you're interested in that, please click on um, the buttons to uh, the Artemis Research Center, which are everywhere on my social media and on YouTube. And um, feel free to sign up to the newsletter and sign up to anything you like and follow along and subscribe. And uh, I hope to see you all um, in some of those courses and some of those projects. For today... Uh, Oh, and I should say, for those of you that are new to the podcast, this is an unedited episode, an unedited podcast, which means that I am just here talking to you and I am going to um, go over all of the, uh, some of the, or many of the uh, bleeding sacrifices um, for the gods, for the ancient gods, but it is unedited. Um, I literally post it uh, just as it is recorded because I kind of sometimes as some of you who have been with me for a while thoughts occur to me while we're talking and I also want it to seem like we're having a real conversation I know it's not a two-way conversation um, (laughs) but um, I want it to feel more like a conversation rather than a lecture and so it is totally unedited and um, it is pretty much the way I like talking to my students um, at the university where I teach Today we're going to be covering bloody sacrifices. And so I've had to sort of narrow it down so that we're not here for, you know, three months because there's so much blood sacrifices and blood uh, offerings and blood meaning. But I did want to sort of touch upon several things in this episode. So we're going to look at things like menstrual blood, prepare yourself, just giving you a heads up. We are going to look at um, animal sacrifice and human sacrifice in ancient Greece, mostly. 
although there will be other um, examples as well. We are going to look at the sacrifice of children. And I don't mean that, like, please don't worry, it's not traumatic in any way. But the stories of God's demanding um, child sacrifice, like Iphigenia or Abraham and Isaac or things like that, or the Minotaur, even though the Minotaur is technically not a god, but the sacrifice of youths. So this is what I mean. We're going to be looking at that concept. And then um, we are going to be talking about the new Gen, Gen V TV show. And if you haven't watched it, that's okay. I'm only going to be talking about the first episode and blood bending um, in the Avatar. So if you're an, an Avatar uh, and the Avatar, the animated series, sorry, not not the blue people um, and blood bending. So we're going to kind of end with blood, hmm, blood control, blood manipulation in uh, popular culture. And so we're going to kind of wrap it up with that. So I'm really, really excited um, to talk to you about all of these things. Let's begin with. The blood is the life. Now, I don't know. I say this all the time, and I don't know if people know this is a, a Dracula um, quote. And I think it's from the Dracula with Keanu Reeves, but don't quote me, uh, where I, I think Dracula goes, the blood is the life, like that, you know? And I don't know if some of you know this, but uh, for many, many years, I taught a vampire course um, through Seneca College. And I'd probably still be teaching it today. It's just that vampires have kind of fallen out of favor. So it it was, it came up with Twilight and that whole kind of trend. And also because I'm Romanian and have a Transylvanian background. And of course, Dracula comes out of Transylvania. But I have been fascinated with the symbolism of blood, the, the multiplexities, I don't know if that's a word, of blood ritual, um, I, in my course, I used to teach about people using like Elizabeth Bathory, who used blood to rejuvenate their, I don't know, their youth, their faces, their bodies, and they would either put it on themselves or drink it. So we're going to talk about some of that today. Um, and I mean, I think we've all seen the Kardashians do that. Uh, that what is it called? The vampiric facial so like the bleeding facials or putting blood on your face. Um, although I wonder what you'll think today, actually, because today we're going to talk about menstrual blood for a little bit. And one of the secrets to aging or anti-aging was using menstrual blood for your face and your body. And so I wonder if the Kardashians have it wrong <laughs> in the sense that... Um, they are using, you know, I don't know how to call bodily, they're all bodily blood, but like vein blood rather than womb blood um, for their face. Perhaps there should be, uh, someone should tell them about menstrual blood. Yeah. Uh, but this is probably not new to all of you. And I think all of you that have joined me um, have some, I've heard of some kind of connection with blood and life and blood and rejuvenation and blood and all these things. So I do want to cover some of them. And I want to tell you a little bit about um, what did the ancients do with blood, whether it's sacrificial blood or menstrual blood or all the other blood. Um, so let's begin with the ancient Greeks, since they are uh, my area of expertise. Uh, so in ancient Greeks, um, women's bleeding or women's menstrual bleeding was considered a cosmic event. So it usually was tied to the moon or to the lunar cycle. And 
for those of you who might not know, the word menstruation is etymologic, etymologically related to the moon. Yeah. Uh, it's it comes from this idea of menses, which are derived from the Latin menses or month, which in turn relates to the Greek mene or moon. And this is because, as some of you know, that ancient women's cycles were tied to the moon. So women used to bleed on the full moon or the moon cycle is every 28 days. So they would tend to bleed at the same time. And I think we've talked about when we talked about um, the Holy Grail and we talked a lot about blood then, we talked a little bit about this idea that women synchronized their menstrual cycles and that their menstrual cycles could be weaponized or their menstrual blood could be weaponized. Okay? And so there are many traditions, not just in ancient Greece, but for example, even in the ancient Egyptians that involved the digestion of blood or the ingest, sorry, the ingestion of menstrual blood. Um, and it is because this blood was, th was thought to be magic Women were thought to be at the peak of their power, spiritual power, even physical power. And so they were thought and mental power at this time. So it's it's a very um it's a it's a magic time to work with spells or to work with manifestations, to work with any of that stuff. And so, in fact, ancient Egyptians used to ingest menstrual blood mixed with red wine to increase spiritual power. Okay. And in lots of ancient Greek um, festivals, especially in the spring, menstrual blood was spread across the earth. For example, um, it was sometimes mixed with corn and it was thought to be to increase fertility. Okay. Um, you know, the physician Hippocrates started bleeding sick people. Okay. Oh, this is a theory. He may have started bleeding sick, sick people because he saw that women would recover from bloating and aches and pains after starting their periods. I mean, this is a great observation because for those of us who have bled, I mean, you don't have to have bled. You could have anyone, you can know people who bleed monthly who have their menstrual cycles, but those of us who have them um, or experience them know that there is of that bloating period, that swelling, that pain period, right? Everything hurts, blah, blah, blah. And then once you have your period or at the end of your period, you, um, you feel better. So I think that's a great observation and I don't blame Hippocrates at all, but there's this theory that he may have started bloodletting as a, because he saw this relief from women's menstrual cycle. Um, the, there were, of course, the Greeks were, as we know, you know, patriarchal in nature. And so, for example, Aristotle, who hated women, you know, <laughs> Aristotle disliked women so much. Um, he saw them as unfinished men, right? And he has that famous quote where he says, um, we we have sex with men for pleasure and women for procreation. I mean, he is real. He's a real Aristotle was a real piece of work, um, but he saw menstrual blood as a lesser form of semen, <laughs> which of course is ridiculous. Um, but Aristotle has some of his own issues. So in the ancient world, just like uh, much of today and for many many years, young women started bleeding or started their menarche around the age of 14, 10, 12, 14. Um, and the goddess Artemis, as we'll talk about, is a goddess that was in charge of the rites of passage 
for young girls, either right pre-menage or as they had their menage, depends on where we're talking about, and as they entered into marriageable age. I was talking to my students yesterday, actually. Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, ironically, I was talking to them about blood yesterday too in my class. But I was talking to them about this idea that bleeding and the womb, yeah, we were talking about womb culture and the womb, bleeding and the womb is the only reason or bleeding or menage is the only reason we're all here in the sense that a woman has to bleed in order to be able to give birth. And so I was, I was explaining to them that um, if your mother didn't bleed, you wouldn't be here. And if her mother didn't bleed, she wouldn't be here. And so on and so on, all the way back to the conception of humankind. And so I know that we have lots of these uh, monotheistic, you know, Judeo-Christian um, ideas that a sky god creates humans out of his thoughts. You know, he has these thoughts and they come to light. But the truth is that every human born on this planet is born because of a bleeding woman right? Um, and at some point in the beginning of time or in the beginning of evolution, wherever you want to think about it, the first woman that bled was able to give birth to the rest of us. And so often women's, um, women's menage has been for many, 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 like hundreds of thousands of years, this period was a time of celebration. It was a time of power. Um, menstrual blood was sometimes used in pharmacology, an ancient pharmacology to produce, you know, healing effects, produce um, any kind of pain relief effect, all that kind of stuff, um, mostly for women. Now, we don't have too much evidence in Greece that they were using this blood for um, as a remedy for for men. However, as we'll see, there are numerous examples in which this blood was used as a as a spell, uh, as a tool for a spell or as, as a medium for in, in developing more power, increasing power, um, magic spells, like people would put it in their foods, um, things like that. Yeah. Now, if we talk, if we're talking about the Judeo-Christian or the pre-Judeo or pre-Jewish or pre-Hebrew text, uh, or early Hebrew uh, culture, um, I don't know how many of you have read the book, The Red Tent by Anita D Diamond, who talks or, you know, it's historical fiction. She, but she talks about the um, separation of men and women during their menstrual cycle. And so women go into a red tent, literally red for blood, and they spend their five to seven days while they're menstruating there. But this red tent was thought to be powerful in the sense that no one came near it only women, so younger and older women would come in and out while the menstruating women would stay in it. Um, before a concept like the red tent, there are stories of sort of early peoples, let's say early Neolithic people, or perhaps even pre that, where menstrual blood was used on weapons to create more power. Uh, people would paint their bodies with it. Often, like I said before, people would use it on their faces. Um, I read this story, but I can't remember exactly where I found it now. Uh, I think it's an ancient uh, papyrus scroll that suggested, and I think it was out of Rome, maybe, um, that suggested that if women, for example, if a woman had like droopy body parts, or for example, droopy breasts, or or a swollen stomach, 
um, that they could put menstrual blood on these areas and that menstrual blood would perk things up. <laughs> um, and so even for example, as far as Rome, Pliny, uh, the author Pliny talks about that even though menstrual blood is baneful, right? Like, oh my God, it's so baneful. Um, it has potentially useful implications. And one of the things that he talks about is, of course, its use in spells. Elizabeth Bathory um, used blood. She was a countess in Eastern Europe in the 14th uh, century, 13, 14th, 15th century. Um, and she used blood to coat her body, the blood of young virgins uh, to coat her body with. Now, it is unclear whether she used um, menstrual blood uh, it is more likely that she used, I'm going to call it vein blood, um, because by the time we get to the 14th century, menstrual blood goes through several revisions in which it becomes dirty, impure, um, something to not be celebrated, something to be hidden and something to be thrown away. So if you think about it in the ancient world, people used to collect it and use it for whatever, let's say magic or uh, healing or um, anti-aging, let's say. And then over you know the last 2000 years, it became something that was hidden and it became um, associated with a curse. So as a society, and even today, you know, people will say, oh, you know, I've got my monthly curse. Um, and again, that has a lot to do with Christianity and the sin of Eve. And apparently because when Adam and Eve found out that they were naked after they ate the apple, suddenly Eve was then given pregnancy or procreation. And suddenly because Yahweh had punished them, uh, this seemed like her bleeding seemed like a curse. I mean, the whole story is so complicated and, and so fantastical in a way, because here is a God that creates with thoughts or creates a woman out of a man's body, totally unnaturally, okay, totally unnaturally, and then punishes a woman, Eve, with the curse of bleeding and the curse of procreation. Um, all of that is, of course, um, political propaganda and patriarchal propaganda. But this is the beginning of seeing menstrual blood as something other than magical, other than powerful. Uh, there are some scholars that tell us that actually the Greeks, for example, predating the Christians, um, don't see any didn't see any difference between bleeding, bleeding, vein bleeding, and menstrual blood. Um, but again, there are different opinions on this, and of course, there are different scholars uh, that write this. Um, you can imagine that menstrual blood was often thought of as magical because. And uh, women bleed for seven days, let's say up to seven days and don't die. And if uh, if you cut your arm in war or your leg or whatever and bleed for seven days, you will die. And so this, to, this should still be magical today, right? Like I know that we can scientifically explain it, which is great, but it is still magic that a human can bleed Um and every month, once a month, and um, and they survive. And not only that, but the bleed, the bleeding that they do, not only does not kill them, but it is the source of creation. It is the source of life. Yeah. Um, 
Pliny, coming back to Pliny for a minute, I found a reference where he talks about, he writes that if a woman got her period during a solar or lunar eclipse, since we are in eclipse season, she could kill a man just by having sex with him. So those of you who are bleeding out there once a month, this month we have two eclipses. We just had a solar one and we're going to have a lunar one. So if you're bleeding during any of that time, Ladies and gentlemen, be careful of how much sex you have, just in case. Yeah. Um, there, and this and this idea of Pliny's that a woman could kill a man uh, while having sex with him during her menstruation um, seems to almost bleed. Oh, that that was not not an intended pun, but um, bleed into this idea that um, the period blood had the power to damage male genitals. Yeah. Uh, but again, the Romans, we're told, also had very similar practices with menstrual blood. So uh, during fertility rites, women who were bleeding would hike up their skirts and run across the field or walk across crops. Um, and not only was that thought to fertilize the earth, but also it was thought to kill pests <laughs> like um, crickets, or locusts. So imagine this phenomenon. So for example, this phenomenon is witnessed in Cappadocia uh, in Italy during a particularly bad beetle infestation. Okay, A bunch of menstruating women walk through the fields with their skirts hiked up to their butt cheeks and those beetles fell dead right off the corn. Okay, um, And so this blood was so powerful that it had the power to kill off plagues. Yeah. So it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Because in some ways it's so powerful that it's healing and it's protecting and it's fertilizing. In another way, it's so powerful that those who do not bleed, particularly uh, the male sex, are afraid of that level of power. And so some use it like on their weapons or their shields or whatever, it depends on who we're talking about and some fear it. So you can see that there is, um, and especially some men fear it because they also believe that women could use it to put in their food or in their drinks, like we saw with the Egyptians and manipulate them with it. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I used to hear these stories that Men who fell in love with women that let's say the community or the friends couldn't explain why is he so attracted to this woman? Um, there used to be this idea. I don't know if this is still around. You guys will have to tell me that somehow she may be putting her menstrual blood in his food as a spell. So it's so it's, it's funny because uh, it could be weaponized blood menstrual blood is weaponized, but somehow it works. It can work against women as well. Um, and so uh, very, very interesting. Menstrual blood has lots of power um, and is a very, very powerful form of blood. Um, so I'm hoping that you see that. So the blood is the life. In this case, not in the vampiric sense <laughs> that Dracula meant, uh, which is, you know, sort of drinking it from the vein, but the blood, the sort, the true blood that is the life, the true source of life is menstrual blood. An undeniable fact. Yeah. So let's move into some bleeding for the gods and bleeding in ancient Greece. So I'm going to tell you a couple of stories from Pausanias. Number one, because some of you know how much I really enjoy Pausanias. 
and how much I'd love to walk in his footsteps one day soon. But number two, because he tells some great stories. So um, I'm going to tell you about Sparta and I'm going to tell you about a couple of bleeding rites, rites of passage for Artemis as well. If you've ever go to Sparta, one of the things that maybe is not on the visiting list Sometimes I just think about all the the ways I want to take people on tours to these sites. Um, yeah, like I just feel this calling to take all of you with me to these sites and these places. Um, I just need to find a little team or a couple of other people that are willing to do like the the organization work because as a as a you know, as a professor at the university, you know, I teach as a contract professor, I teach a lot of courses, a lot of courses during the year, and I just don't have enough time to, to do the planning, you know, but one day, one day, my friends, we will go and see all these sites. Um, this picture that I'm showing you here, if you're watching on YouTube, or even if you're listening on Spotify, I will describe it for you. So this is the ruins on the on the right hand side here the ruins of the temple of Artemis Orthea at Sparta. And it is a place that is not very visited. Uh, when I went there, I had so much trouble finding it because you kind of, you go, there's a theater, there's a couple of other temples out just outside of the modern day city of Sparta. And then finding this um, site takes, takes a little figuring out. Anyways, there's not much to see here. As you can imagine, there are just bottom remains of buildings and the temple site. Um, but it is it is a really lovely small um, sanctuary or temple. And it has a really bloody um, heritage or a really bloody ritual that the Spartans used to do. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know why no one has made a film about this. I mean, it, this would be a, a wonderful moment in some kind of Spartan film, because we have 5,000 Spartan films, um, to focus on the practices in Sparta. So I will tell you a little bit uh, from Pausanias, who traveled there. So maybe I did travel a little bit in his footsteps, because I knew there was a temple of Orthea in Sparta. And I, I guess the first time I must have stumbled on, stumbled on it was in reading uh, his, his travel writings. So he says, uh, in the place called Limanoin, uh, this is in Lacedaemonia, sorry, my pronunciation today is a bit off, um, there is a sacred... Uh, grove to Artemis Orthea. Um, and this was a wooden image. Artemis Orthea is said to have been a, a wooden image, which uh, Orestes and Iphigenia stole out of the Tauric land and brought it down to uh, the space. So the Spartans also worshipped Artemis Orthea. And the Spartan, sorry, the, the Spartan Lime, Lime nations uh, and the people of Mesoa and Pitani and all these people while sacrificing to Artemis, fell into a quarreling, so they were arguing, which led also to bloodshed. Many were killed at the altar, and the rest died of disease, whereat an oracle was delivered to them. So after this happened, there was an oracle that was delivered to them that they should stain the altar with human blood. Okay. So let me rephrase that. So Fighting over this cult statue of Artemis Orthea took place between the Spartans and a few other neighboring um, communities. 
And because they fought and a bunch of them died and a bunch of them injured themselves, there was an oracle that said, in order for you to now make up for this offense to goddess, to the goddess Artemis Arthea, you must now start to cover the altar in human blood. Now, there's lots of stories about covering the altar in animal blood, which we're going to get to in a minute, but this required human blood sacrifice. And so there is, there are some scholars who say that for a while, Spartans offered human sacrifice. One, one warrior, one young male would, um, sacrifice himself or be sacrificed for um, Artemis Rathia. However, after time, and by the time we get to uh, Lycurgus, he decided um, to change this, you know, so human sacrifice fell out of favor, let's just say, okay? There's a lot of writing about human sacrifice, but after a while, you were like, okay, it's not okay, too much human sacrifice. And so what they did is they began a scourging or a whipping of young men. Okay. And so there's several, um, there's several practices. One is where a priestess stands by the altar, holding the wooden image of Artemis Orthia. Okay. It's small and it's light. Okay. And the scouragers, the, the, the young men are whipping themselves into a frenzy so that they can bleed all over the altar together. So it doesn't require one human sacrifice. There's all of these young men bleeding together on the altar. And you can imagine that the priestess is full of blood. The cult statue is full of blood. The altar is full of blood. So sometimes they would whip themselves in such a frenzy that it's sort of like a last man standing. They would see who would stand. Sometimes there are rumors that young men would die during this ritual. Um, and this ritual would only stop when the statue, the, the wooden statue, would become so full of blood. So like wet wood, wet wood, imagine this, okay, that it would be too heavy for the priestess to carry, okay? Um, and so she would then say, okay, that is enough. The, the, the goddess has been fed. Yeah. Um, there's also a couple of other ex um, stories of the Spartans. There's one about that the Romans carried on later on. There's one about stealing cheese that I really like. So they would put cheese on the altar and they would ask young men as a rite of passage, for example, to come up and try and steal the cheese. So they would have kind of two teams or they would have um, guardians standing by with whips and young men would come and try and steal the cheese. And as they came, they would get whipped and whipped and whipped and whipped. Um, and, you know, they would run back and then come back and steal the cheese, run back and come back. And so sometimes they did a competition in two teams where they whipped each other and saw how much cheese they could steal. And sometimes they did it in a competition where the man or the young man who stole the most cheese would be sort of the winner, but also would probably have bled, you know, have bled a lot um, on that altar. And so there's this tradition that that even though the human sacrifice fell out of favor, Artemis Orthia still demanded human blood. And so human blood becomes very, very important. So one of the things that I argue in my book is how bloodthirsty Artemis really is. And there are several examples in her rituals in which uh, she demands sacrifice, either human sacrifice or, an, or blood sacrifice, or uh, sometimes she punishes humans with... Um, bleeding and dying, or sometimes she withholds blood. So blood and the ancient gods and power over blood 
is particularly important. And Artemis's power over blood is fascinating to me because as we'll see, there's a very fantastic connection to blood bending. Yeah. Um, there is this example that I hadn't planned on talking about, but I will talk about it now because it feels like such a great connection. Um, there is a um, a story about Artemis Apankomene, which uh, translates to Artemis Strangled. And there's this long story that um, there were a couple of children in one of the villages who were uh, playing with the statue of Artemis or around the statue of Artemis. And they somehow uh, wrapped this rope around her and kind of strangled the statue, et cetera. And that the villagers saw this as an offense and killed the children and offered them a sacrifice to Artemis. But this backfired on them because Artemis became so upset with the loss of the children, as we know, part of her responsibility or part of her care um, is children, that she stopped all the menstruation of the women in the town. And so no one could have, um, well, could have children or could have their periods. Um, and then there's stories that she may have actually forced women to miscarry. And so there's this scene as this plague where no children could be born and no bleeding was done. I bring that up because I would like to state that Artemis is the very first blood bender. Yeah. She is able to withhold menstrual blood in women, and therefore she is able to withhold life. Um, and there's lots of stories that are connected with this story um, about the way that um, Artemis is also um, associated with the tree from which some of the ropes were made in the ancient world. Um, and so this idea of uh, making rope, this idea of roping the womb, like a girdle of tightening uh, the rope to stop bleeding. And as some of you know, when you have, for example, an artery bleed, the first thing that you do is you tighten uh, something, some type of rope or band around it so it stops bleeding. So this power of Artemis to stop bleeding is unique to her. And I would argue that she's one of the first bloodbenders. In fact, I should probably totally coined that Artemis, the first bloodbender, and, and talk about some of her blood rites. I will tell you one other uh, whipping story, um, a story that comes from Philostratus, uh, first, second century CE. And he talks about, um, he writes this story uh, in the life of Apollonius. And so I'll read you a little bit of the story. The Egyptian sage Thespisan put some questions to Apollonius. Okay. who was a pagan prophet in the first century CE about the scourging in Sparta. And he asked if the Laconians were smitten with rods in publics. That is, was were the Laconians beaten bloody with rods? And Apollonius says, yes. Okay. As men can spite them. So men used to, used to hit each other with rods. Uh, it was especially men of noble and distinguished birth among them that were so treated. Okay. The custom of whipping or hitting is a ceremony in, art, in, in honor of Artemis Scythia, or so they say, and was prescribed by the oracles. To oppose the regulations of the gods, in my opinion, was utter madness. So that means to, to deny her this blood would have been outer um, madness. And so here too, 
um, you have the sprinkling of the go of the goddess's altar with human blood. In this case, it is um, um, with a rod, so hitting with a rod. Okay, um, the skithoi, the skythoi, held the altar to be worthy of human blood. Okay, but the like the Lacedaemonians, the Lacedaem. Why can I not say any Greek words today? I'm so sorry. The Lacedaemonians modify the ceremony from human sacrifice uh, into another contest of endurance. And in this case, um, they offered they offered their blood as a fruit, a fruit of their labor. Okay. And in this particular play by Philostratus, the character says, why then do they not sacrifice strangers or people from other villages to Artemis, okay, as it was their right to do? And Apollonius replies in this piece, because he says, it is not congenial to any of the Greeks to adopt in their full rigor the manners and customs of barbarians. And so this has been interpreted both as outsiders so the idea that Greeks would not want to adopt the um, system of sacrificing an outsider for their own goddess as barbarians or outsiders do. But there's also this idea that the, that the Greek blood, just like the Spartan blood, whatever, the Greek, whoever uh, associated themselves as Greek, was more sacred to the gods than the blood of outsiders. And so often you see a lot of self-flagellance, self-whipping, uh, self-scourging. Uh, um, and there are stories that tell us that the Spartans were very proud of their whipping scars because it showed that they had survived um, this offer to the goddess Artemis. So let's talk about bleeding sacrifice. I want to talk a little bit about bleeding animal sacrifices. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about um, other human sacrifices. Um, and so there, let's talk a little bit about what it was like to have in the Greek world. What does the, the festival of sacrifice uh, look like? So I'm just going to pick one from Athens that we can kind of go through the steps. Okay. In a, in a regular or in a pan-Hellenic or a pan-Athenaic um, pan uh, festival, there are a few steps that were used, standard steps in, in animal sacrifice. So the ceremony always starts with a procession that is led by basket carriers, and they were usually well-born well -born women or young women. They carry a sacrificial basket to the altar. They're accompanied by musicians. Uh, lots of members of every part of society. So officials, soldiers, other community members, everybody's in the profession. Then they get to the altar. The altar is always outside of the temple. So when you go visit ancient temple sites, you will see that there is, in the case of Artemis, but other gods, there is a small temple site, like a small building would have been the temple. And then outside, usually in front of it, is, um, well, you, I can't think of an altar that is still standing today, but there will have been like a square on the floor where the ancient altar would have stood. So everyone would be able to view this ritual and everyone would be able to view the sacrificing. So they get to the altar, okay? 
Um, and then there's a water basin. They have, so they have fire. Usually they have a water basin. They have a knife um, and um, a sacrificial knife only used for sacrifice. And we are told that they walk um, clockwise around the altar. Okay. Then the officiant or depends on the, on the, the nature of the sacrifice, the head of the family, the community leader, the, the priestess, the religious official wash their hands in the sacred water or in the water basin. The animal is then adorned. So there's lots of depictions of animals adorned with flowers, usually flowers or paint, uh, painted symbols on them, or the animal is made very, very beautiful and is then sprinkled with water. Okay. Then there is a ritual silence. So like a moment of silence, then there is prayer. Barley and grain is then scattered. Again, fertility, um, symbols of fertility, symbols of um, growth. And the first offering is the hairs cut from the forehead of the animal, which are then thrown into the fire. So the fire is set up by the altar or on the altar sometimes, but usually by the altar, beside the altar. The throat, excuse me, the throat of the animal is then slit. Sometimes this is accompanied by females crying, screaming, crying. Sometimes this is done in silence. Depends, again, which community we're talking about. And the blood from the throat of the animal is collected in a special bowl. The animal is then sliced into portions. Some are burned for the god. Some are given to special members who participated, like the priestess, and the leftovers are given to the participants, or they are left for the temple to sell, okay? And so this these are sort of standard steps that we're going. There are different aspects of it. So for example, how much was sacrificed makes a big, big difference, yeah? Um, how large, so is it a bull? Is it a calf? Is it a goat? So everything had meaning, right? So young, like baby animals had a certain meaning um, in being sacrificed. Large, beautiful bulls had certain meaning in being sacrificed. Goats as well. Um, the It is very clear, it is made very clear that the sacrifice is not a hunt. It is often also made clear that the animal is willing, although that's a, that's a trick. So there's a lot there, you know, when you read primary text, you see some of this um, description that the animal is calm, that the animal is willing. Uh, sometimes there were, there are scholars who talk about the animal may have been given a drought to make them, of course, less um, rebellious. Uh, usually the sacrificial, the, those who, know how to do the sacrificial cutting um, can do it very quickly so the animal does not suffer. In fact, actually one of the key to this ritual sacrifice is to make sure that the animal does not suffer. Um, and so like you don't want the animal crying out. You don't want the animal fighting. Uh, there is something about a willing sacrifice that the ancient found particularly beautiful and um, made it that much of a better offering to the gods. Yeah. And so things like sheep and pigs were often sacrificed more than cattle, for example, because they were more expensive. Cattle was more expensive. Um, in the Iliad though, we are told that no expense was spared 
uh, as the animals often function as a wealth or a symbol of status for those who are sacrificing. So Agamemnon, for example, sacrifices a hundred cattle or ox to Apollo to purify his army, which if you think about a military army who has that many ox or cattle, that is for food, right? That is to maintain the army. But all of these cattle, a hundred cattle or oxen are sacrificed to Apollo um, to purify his um, his army. Uh, for in Artemis, for example, in Artemis Agritera, uh, we are told that on the 6th of uh, Thargelion, uh, which brought lots of good fortune to Athens and many other cities, uh, the Persian when the Persians were defeated in 490 BCE, the Athenians sacrificed the god to the goddess Agritera or Artemis 300 goats. Um, and so on that day, for example, when the Persians were defeated in 490 BC, uh, sorry, yeah, 490 BCE, there were, in order to thank the goddess for such victory, 300 goats uh, were um, sacrificed. Yeah. So goats, cattle, etc., and the amount of sacrifice is um, equal to a person's status, or perhaps if an individual has something that they're really, uh, I, I don't know, let's say they want to sacrifice for the health of their children or the health of their parents or whatever. So the higher the sacrifice, the better the animal, the purer or the more expensive, clearly that is a better sacrifice. But let's also talk a little bit about Greeks and human sacrifice, right? Um, we've talked about the Spartans and, and others, you know, whipping themselves and bleeding. But we do have some stories of actual human sacrifice um, in, uh, well, in the Odyssey. Of course, the Odyssey does contain a number of myths about human sacrifices. Um, but we do have some stories of, outside of Homer as well, of human sacrifices. So Iphigenia is one of the most famous, but I would like to talk about her next and compare her to Isaac. So we're going to skip her. But Polyxena, who is sacrificed here in this image, if you're watching with me on YouTube, which is, has a bunch of uh, Greek holder, soldiers holding uh, Polyxena and also cutting the throat like a sacrificial um, animal. So the sacrifice has the same symbolism. Polyxena was the daughter of Priam, who was the king of Troy. And Homer writes that she was claimed by the ghost of Achilles as his share of the spoils and was therefore put to death at his tomb. But many agree that Achilles's ghost appeared before the Greeks, saying that to have favorable winds on the way back to Greece after the war, they needed to sacrifice Polyxena at the foot of his at the foot of his grave. Hecuba devastatingly, of course, is pleading not to lose another child, but Polyxena said that she preferred to die as a sacrifice for Achilles rather than become a slave to the Greeks. Yeah. And Neo Neoptolemus, the son of Achilles, was the one who slit Polyxena's throat. So again, another devastating example of human sacrifice, in this case of female sacrifice for a man, by a man, etc. Yeah, I was going to go on a rant here, but let me just tell you the second one. <laughs> I have a little rant about bleeding and sacrifice of humans, but 
I will save it. Uh, another story tells us about uh, Edomenus, led who led the Crete, Cretan armies to the Trojan War. In the Iliad, he is found among the first rank of the Greek generals, one of Agamemnon's most trusted advisors. However, a later tradition of Apollodorus in Athens says that after the war, Edomenus's ship hit a terrible storm. And as a result, he promised Poseidon that he would sacrifice the first living thing he saw when he returned home if Poseidon would save his ship and crew. Devastatingly, the first living thing that Edomenus saw when he arrived home was his son. And Edomenus sacrificed his son. Yeah. And so because this is written later, Apollodorus writes later, we are told that the gods were angry at the murder of his own son and sent the plague to Crete. And his subjects, the Cretan, sent him in exile to Calabria and then uh, to Colophon in Asia Minor, where he died. So a lot of these mythologies around human sacrifice are, or stories around human sacrifice are based on perhaps more ancient stories. But by the time they make it, let's say, into a little more modern text, human sacrifices look down upon it especially of a son, which is interesting because Polyxena's story is not changed. She remains sacrificed for the ghost of Achilles. Um, but uh, we can see that for Idomenus, for example, sacrificing his own son um, is seen as something that is worth exile and he is sent away. Outside of Homer's work, we know of the sacrifices to the Minotaur, where there are um, 14 um, uh, what do you call it? 14 youths that are sacrificed, um, a human sacrifice. So seven girls and sever seven boys. Um, and they are sent unarmed into, um, the labyrinth to be the food for the Minotaur. And so again, we have the sacrifice of young people or the sacrifice of youths, uh, teenagers. Yeah. Uh, there's also been a study several years, I mean, a discovery several years ago now, maybe seven, almost 10 years ago on Mount Lycaon, which is the mountain of Zeus, where they have actually found human remains. Yeah. Um, that they, a young boy, for example, they found the human remains of a young boy who is seen, seems to have been sacrificed with other animals. So they found this young boy's remains with animal remains. And Scholars, uh, archaeologists, uh, for example, the archaeologist on this dig is Dr. David Gilman Romano. Uh, he's from he's a Greek archaeologist from University of Arizona. He says that there are several ancient sources that mention or rumors that human sacrifice took place at the altar of Zeus uh, here in um, uh, in Lycaon. However, they are hesitant to say whether or not this young man was a human sacrifice, but this is the first human bones that are found at an at a sacrificial site uh, at a sacrificial altar. Yeah. So he's like, you know, uh, Dr. Romano says, you know, this is not a, this is not a, a cemetery. It is not a place that you would bury someone. So the odds that this was a human sacrifice for Zeus are very, very good. And the, the, the key to it is that the skull is missing. Yeah. And so the, um, this, this was a, a decapitation of some, some point, perhaps, 
um, unless the skull somehow went missing um, in other, some animal or some other way. Um, But it does seem that a young boy's body alongside sacrificial animal bodies or bones, like, sorry, bones, um, seems like there may have been uh, sacrifice, human sacrifices to Zeus um, late, late into the classical period. One of the things that um, we don't get to talk about, and that perhaps if you're interested, maybe I could do a talk, uh, um, an episode on, is the sacrifice of young men or consorts to the gods. And there are many, many stories around, especially around Minoans and especially around Crete in and many others where um, every six or seven years, the, the consort to the priestess was sacrificed. And there are many stories in which young men are sacrificed, are seen to sort of embody the dying God, Dionysus, or a dying fertility God. Uh, this is where the story of Jesus comes out and things like that, or is inspired by for later. So there, there are traditions in which young men embody the dying God and are killed, said to be resurrected on the other side, obviously not humanly resurrected. Um, and there are lots of stories of that kind of sacrifice, although I do have to say that that, again, is a type of self-sacrifice. That is, the young men appear to go willingly. Um, in the case of Minoan Crete, the men, sometimes they're not young, they could be in their 20s, 20, you know, 20s, mid-20s, depends when how the time falls on their on, in their age, Um are prepared and and are and and go very willingly, you know, spend the six, seven years in rotation uh, preparing for this sacrifice, for this. Uh, so I think that's a really fascinating topic, um, although it requires a bit more research because the data that we have is still several stories, let's say. Um, and you can't really build an, an entire custom. Um, well, what I mean is you can't, build a general custom or a common custom from a few stories. But it would be interesting to research um, this. And I'm sure there's lots of work out there on this idea that consorts, that male consorts were often um, seen to embody this uh, dying God, especially every spring and um, or winter to spring before the spring solstice, and they would uh, sacrifice themselves in order to for the community to thrive and uh, for the uh, fertility of the, the the grains and the um, and the people. Yeah? So that would be an interesting, I think, addition. Although that has that's less bloody, but actually that takes me right into this idea that gods demand blood a blood price. And so talking about Iphigenia and talking about Isaac. So I wanted to compare these two things. So um, although the sacrifices are one of a daughter and one of a son, the I, I see the sacrifices of being almost identical. And there are other examples of this. So this is not the only example, but I do want to compare these two examples um, of a father being asked by a god or their god to sacrifice their child um to prove or to make up for an offense 
So let's just talk briefly about the two. So in the case of Iphigenia, Agamemnon, we are told, offends Artemis by either shooting one of her deer or boasting that he can shoot better than her. Whatever he does, he pisses her off. And she turns around and says, for the offense that you have done, you will have to sacrifice your youngest child, which is Iphigenia, who is about 12, 13 Interestingly, just coming of age, just possibly coming into her menage, just possibly coming into marriageable age. Um, and we are told that argument or, or you will not get any uh, wind in your sails and you will not be able to head over to Troy. This is before the Trojan War begins or on the way to the Trojan War. And we know that Agamemnon tells his um, wife, Clytemestra, that he wants to marry Iphigenia to Achilles so that he she should send her daughter to the front of the battlefield and they will do the wedding there, which already is a bit suspect because who needs to get married uh, during a battle? But either way, Clytemestra says, okay, Iphigenia shows up at the uh, front of the battlefield, probably shocked to see her father preparing an altar, um, but actually, no, maybe not shocked. Maybe she thought that, you know, the, the, the ritual sacrifice would be for the wedding. But we are told that um, Agamemnon lays Iphigenia on the Altizer up, right? Like an offering. And uh, places her on the altar, is about to, you know, has a knife in his hand and is about to kill her. And we are told two stories. We are told that at the very last minute, right before Agamemnon stabs or kills his daughter in sacrifice for Artemis. Artemis flies down and replaces Iphigenia with a fawn or a baby deer. Okay. And so as the knife is coming down, um, instead of Iphigenia, a fawn dies. And Artemis takes Iphigenia with her and gives her a priestess role or leading role, Iphigenia remains forever with Artemis. And there's a long tradition of Iphigenia being a priestess for Artemis at Buran, uh, at Teropolis, and many other many other areas. Um, and so they become almost, um, I don't know if I would say mother-daughter, I would say more like um, mentor and mentee, um, older sister, younger sister. They have this very close relationship there's a very, uh, Iphigenia is very, very close to Artemis and is, is, is one of her leading priestesses. So there's this idea that the gods demand a sacrifice that they, and that the sacrifice be a child sacrifice, right? Then we have the case of Abraham and Isaac. Now I thought of this, I was sitting in one of my world religions classes. One of my colleagues was talking about Judaism. And so he started talking about um, the story of Abraham. We started at the beginning and as he's talking about the story of Abraham, I can literally see Agamemnon and Iphigenia. And I see so many parallels and I'm thinking, oh my God, all of these gods demand the sacrifice of children. Because I suppose, uh, you know, logically, that is the highest type of sacrifice that a parent can do. Although we saw uh, Idomenus being punished for that later on by his community. However, the god like in that case, Poseidon didn't seem too offended about the sacrifice of a son. So we have Abraham who also has created this covenant with Yahweh and they're in a new relationship. It is true that Abraham does not offend Yahweh. Um, but in fact, Yahweh gifts Abraham 
and an old age with a son. And then Yahweh asks Abraham to sacrifice the son to prove his faith. Okay. So again, we have a God who is demanding the, the child sacrifice. And so Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain. He lays him on this rock and he's about to stab him. I mean, I can only imagine the terror of these children, right? Um, and he's about to stab his his only, well, his son through Sarah. Sorry, not only son, because he has another. Um, and he's about to stab him. And an angel of the Lord appears and uh, says, no, no, no. God is just testing you. We will replace Isaac with a lamb. Yeah. And so again, sort of a young animal is um, replacing the child or human sacrifice. And of course, the Abraham sacrifices the lamb and, and all as well. And then Isaac um, becomes, you know, enters into that connection or enters into that relationship with Yahweh and, and continues, you know, the line of Abraham and becomes a leader um, in the, in, in Hebrew stories. And so, and in Hebrew, the Hebrew community. And so the parallels between these two fascinate me for two reasons. Number one, because these are both fathers. And I have yet to tell you a story in which a mother sacrifices her own child by killing it by killing them. And, and that is not to say that women do not kill their children. I don't want to say that. I mean, that's a, that's a huge statement, but I do want you to notice that there is this commonality, even, um, item, Idomenus is also a father who is, you know, who sacrifices a son and that there is something about the Let's see how I can take it. So there's a sort of circular, there's a cycle that happens. So a young woman who bleeds creates life. Men don't bleed menarche. They don't have menstrual blood. And they do not create life in that way. They do not create, they do not carry the life. They do not have the blood of the life, right? So they are somehow removed from that connection. And by that connection, I mean a biological, not a biological connection, um, a magical connection between um, creating life through bleeding. But what happens that's really fascinating is that the fathers of these children are willing to take that, to bleed the children to take that life, to put out that life. Yeah, I don't know if you're, if you're, if you're seeing that in the same way that I'm seeing it, but I'm finding it fascinating. And while I I think that fathers are fundamental to raising children, and I think that there are so many incredible fathers. Um, I have an incredible father myself, and I was very privileged for that. Um, there, there seems to be this trend that fathers are willing to bleed their children for the gods or for war. Or in Abraham's case, for community and for descendants and for for their gods, right? So that somehow fathers place a higher value 
to either their connection to the divine, their own connection to the divine, or war, battle, whatever, whatever. Right? So that there is, so that the children become tools, that the children become, yeah, valuable tools. And so I thought that that was really, really interesting as a, um, as a commentary on how, how sacrifice works, who is willing to sacrifice and how do we, and what is a true sacrifice? Yeah. I did want to take you through, um, the blood of sort of the Eucharist and drinking blood. But I think that we've talked a bit about this concept that ingesting blood uh, gives you power um, in the Holy Grail. And if you're interested in the way that Christians tap into ancient rituals of blood drinking, um, you can, you know, if you look at the Holy Grail episode, it goes into detail. But there is, again, this connection with the Eucharist, which is the blood and body of Christ, um, and this connection of bleeding, of ingesting the blood of the sacred. And I was looking for gods who bleed, you know, um, trying to see if there was any gods that bled as a sacrifice yeah. And they're harder to come by. I mean, so G so what I'm saying is that Jesus seems to be one of the few divinities that bleeds as a sacrifice. Ironically, or perhaps not ironically, Jesus is also the son of a God. And his father sacrifices him for the good of humanity. Yeah. And if we and if we tap into the fact that the God as father of Jesus is Yahweh of Abraham, what we see here is that Yahweh had asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, and Abraham was willing to do so, and then God saves Isaac. And then, you know, when Jesus comes, according to Christians, there's a long story there, but according to Christians, Yahweh sacrifices his own human son, bleeds that son for the salvation of humanity. And so that isn't there isn't that amazing that there is something there's something very masculine here, I have to say. There's something very masculine here, you know, because there's something about bleeding here. And I read this quote, I read this comment uh, a couple of days ago on an Instagram post that uh, was talking about war and men going to war and men bleeding. And uh, someone had commented something like women naturally bleed. And so they don't have to bleed others or something like that. And I thought, wow. And men bleed themselves and bleed others and bleed their families. In this case, their sons or daughters um, in order to feel connected or, or, or offer sacrifice to the divine. Where women, because we naturally bleed, that is a natural connection to the divine. And I thought, well, this per sorry, I'm expanding on this comment, but I thought this was a really interesting concept. 
and it really had me like thinking, right? This is why I kind of wanted to do this episode because it had me thinking about bleeding and the fact that because women bleed, we are not blood hungry or blood thirsty, but because we bleed, we also create, now I'm speaking for biological women as myself, like as far as who's, uh, as far as bleeding, um, but because we bleed, we don't need to bleed others. Um, and so that that's really fascinating. And again, I, this is a, this is not a sweeping statement saying that women don't kill other people or hurt children. Or of course, of course, we know that that happens. Um, but historically speaking, and symbolically speaking, and even you know the records of history. It's really fascinating to think of the fact that men bleed themselves and each other and their loved ones as a sacrifice or as a connection to the divine. And we talk about rites of passage like we did at the beginning of this episode where the Spartans are bleeding themselves for the goddess because they're incapable of bleeding otherwise, right? They're incapable of biologically bleeding in the way that women do. And so that's that just blows my mind sometimes when I think about it. Um and I think that is that is that the case? Like the, you know, it explains a lot of what we've been seeing, especially in these two to you know three thousand years of patriarchy, in which men bleed other men and men bleed the world, um, and themselves and themselves. And so um, I thought that was really interesting. And then the idea that I wanted to to uh, come back to is that then Jesus bleeds for Christians. And Christians drink that blood symbolically, of course, symbolically, but they drink that wine blood to connect to him. Yeah. Like it's, it's just so mind boggling how symbolism, particularly around blood and bleeding is so interconnected that we take it for granted, right? We, we take so much of that for granted. Um, and yet it is so powerful symbolically. Yeah. And so I thought I would touch upon that. I didn't want to go into a whole thing about it because I did spend a lot of time on it in the Holy Grail episode, but I did want to talk about this connection again of sacrificing children, of bleeding for gods. And in this case, uh, in the case of Jesus, bleeding for the salvation of Christians. Um, fascinating stuff. And so I thought I would leave you with modern day blood bending. Yeah. So at the top of the episode, we talk about how Artemis is the first blood bender, or at least I'm coining that Artemis is the first blood bender. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about this new episode of Gen V. Um, I did my uh, one of my lectures on the rituals for um, Artemis at uh, the university. And it was kind of like a little TED talk at the university. And I was talking about rituals and some of it had some blood involved and some of it other things. And somebody came to me after the talk and said, have you watched Gen V? And I said, no, I was watching the boys for a while. And then it became too much, too toxically masculine and too much bleeding, <laughs> ironically, way too much bleeding. And I was like, no, it's just, it's too many dudes doing too many things. And I know it's not only male characters, obviously. So I think I got to like maybe the end of season two and I was like, no, thanks. And he said, uh, well, there's this um, spinoff, Gen V. And he said, you'd be really fascinating with the, the character, with one of the characters in episode one, because what she does is she is able to, and her name is Marie Morel. She is able to, at 12 years old, when she gets her period, she's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? 
she sees her menstrual blood floating and she's terrified, of course. Um, and then she weaponizes that menstrual blood and she tragically kills her parents. And then she realizes that it's actually not just the menstrual blood, but that the that she can she is a blood blood bend, blender blood bender, <laughs> and so that she can weaponize her blood or weaponize blood. Um, you know, so she, this becomes her superpower. And I thought, really, wow. And uh, he had said to me, um, the person who came up to talk to me had said, what's really fascinating is that, of course, this starts with her menstruation. And so I watched the first episode and I thought, oh my God, she is a blood bender and she is using menstrual blood as a weapon in this case to kill her family. So there's just so much symbolism there about um, disconnecting, about moving away from her childhood, moving into adulthood, moving into independence, slicing off her connection to her family uh, like there's just so much symbolism there. And then she becomes a bloodbender. Now bloodbenders come out of this, uh, of uh, the show, the, la the last avatar, or sorry, the last airbender. Oh my God, avatar, the last airbender. Um, and it's a technique. Bloodbending is a technique. If you watch the TV show, uh, you can see it. I love the sequel series, The Legend of Korra, but of course I love uh, the avatar, the last bender series too. And it comes out of this idea that waterbenders can manipulate blood as well because waterbenders, because blood is a liquid. Um, and so uh, the story says that originally bloodbending could only be done during the full moon. Like, so the full moon is the time of menstruation for, for women. And so it's kind of interesting that waterbenders uh, learned or could use blood bending during the full moon and, and they could perform, you know, this blood bending um, eventually without the full moon, once they were able to hone these skills. Um, the most fascinating part about uh, blood bending in the story of the avatar of avatar, sorry, um, is that it was created by a female waterbender named Hama. So she was in prison and and she was imprisoned. And during her time in her cell, she realized that wherever there is life, there is water and every full moon she started um, uh, water bending uh, the rats that were scurried in her cages or that scurried around. And so she was, she was um, water bending the liquids in their bodies. And of course, one of that is blood. And then she realized, Oh my God, blood uh, and hence blood in the prison guards. And, and she's able to free herself and then able to hone the skill and then teach it to others and so on. Um, but what a fantastic superpower started by women uh in the uh the, the avatar uh men also begin to use the skill and then it becomes illegal later on and there's like lots of politics around blood bending but what an incredible superpower and when i saw it in gen v i saw more than just the avatar story um because it starts with menstruation i think that there's a great deal of symbolism there about the power of menstrual blood, the power of awakening young women to their power, which is men which menstrual blood does. Um, so all of the aspects that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, the the use of menstrual blood has now made it into superhero culture. <laughs> and we now have Marie who is 
a blood bender who can use her own blood. I mean, clearly now she uses all you know her vein blood and all her other blood, um, and she's honing her skills. She can use, and eventually, we I think she'll be able to use the blood of others, like um, like the bloodbenders of the Avatar series. But what a fantastic three sixty, you know, from the ancient, let's say, Neolithic, pre Neolithic, and whenever, right? Whenever we don't have lot records for, and the Greek and the Roman. And the Egyptians and all of these cultures, and I'm sure there are other cultures in other parts of the world that are not, you know, maybe in my area of expertise. And maybe maybe there are scholars out there in that area of expertise that would love to share um, some of those stories um, that talk about that. So that so that power of of menstrual blood and of sacrificial blood and just of blood itself, and we've come all the way, you know, to. 2023 2024 where we have a superhero a woman a female superhero a woman superhero who um who use weaponizes the weaponizes blood literally um as a superpower just fascinating um fascinating symbolism i think i could probably talk for hours about it hours and hours and hours and i think that we could really lose ourselves down a rabbit hole of um of blood meaning of blood control of blood use of of contagion too of destruction and of healing um of all of these things that blood plays such a key role in um and so i don't think this is the last time i don't think this is the last time that we're going to talk about blood uh, but I did want to take you through some of these fantastic stories and, and hopefully weave a thread of connection um, through them all. And hopefully that made some sense. Um, so I want to thank you very much for joining me today and for spending some time with me and for listening to this. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it, please rate it, please like it, please comment on it. Um, it helps the algorithm share it with others and, um, and please also feel free to comment and send me messages if you have any sort of, well, all of your thoughts, but any suggestions or I've heard of stories that connect to this, um, any stories or books or anything that you think, uh, that come to mind as you were listening to this. Um, I can't cover everything. And one of the things that I want to do, and I wanted to clarify as well, is that I'm a big fan of representation, um, obviously as an academic and a scholar. So I sometimes people ask me to cover different parts of the world and different cultural mythology. And I know that we kind of have this idea that an academic or a scholar can cover anything. And I do feel like I could read a book about something and then cover it because I like teaching, but I really would love to focus on my area of expertise, which is, you know, Greco, Roman, you know, Anatolia, and now for my own background, for my own countries, the Balkans and Eastern European, which is where I'm kind of going to look into as well, because my background is a mix of Eastern European and Mediterranean. So my goal, actually, as an academic and as and on my personal level, is that I focus on my own history and the history to which I can trace back my my genealogy, let's say. And so then I feel like I am representing 
I'm representing that story. But when it comes to um, mythology, let's say from the African continent or from the Asian continent or from anywhere else, um, I feel like those gods, goddesses, mythologies belong to an academic or an expert or several or many uh, from that culture or indigenous culture, for example, people ask me, well, let's talk about indigenous mythologies. Um, and while I love reading about them and love learning about them, I, I, I don't represent them and I, and I don't want to take up that space. Um, yeah. And so sometimes I do, I do have people asking me, about that, but I just want to make it clear that it's not, it's not, uh, it's, it's an intentional choice. Yeah. It's an intention that I, and it was an intention when I started my PhD and it remains an intention because when I started my PhD, I was like, I want to be able to teach about this. And I want to be able to stand in front of a class and represent as a descendant of the areas that I'm teaching, maybe not a hundred percent a descendant, but a descendant nonetheless. Right. Uh, because we're all, I mean, we're all kind of descendants of the global world, right? So that's like a difficult thing. But um, but it's very important to me that we listen to scholars, especially, especially in a world in which you have so much cultural appropriation, so much cultural experimentation, and I don't want to judge cultural experimentation, you know, people, people kind of learning about different things, but appropriation is not something that I am for and representation is something I'm really, really a uh, big fan of. And so um, if there are scholars out there, or you can think of scholars out there that would love to collaborate or would want to collaborate on, let's say stories about, I don't know, monsters or bleeding or sacrifice or mythology uh, where we can sort of contrast and compare together. Um, that would be a really wonderful idea. So I'm always open to scholars uh, to share. And, and I talk about what I'm, what I'm working on or what I'm researching and they talk about their own research. Um, I think that'd be fantastic, actually, uh, a global collaboration. Um, but I like to, to stick to, um, to this geographical space. Uh, and and that's more that's more for reasons of representation. And there's a lot in this geographical space. And even though I think it feels like we've talked about mythology forever, it is my argument that we've only heard sort of um European Christian male version of a lot of the mythology that we're talking about. So there is a lot of room to go back and reread. As you know, there have been, retranslations of the Odyssey, retranslations of um, the Iliad uh, by modern feminist scholars that now bring other things to light. So there's lots to discover and to talk about. And for me, myself, on a personal level, I am really, really, really looking for my ancestral, my an, an ancestral um, people's practices, particularly women's practices. And there's just so much to dig through. <laughs> so much to dig through my friends so I just wanted to kind of say that um because sometimes I do get those questions and I don't want to I don't want to make a whole comment that's like this long <laughs> so thank you so so much for um for joining me and uh I look forward to seeing you 
soon again for another episode in the next couple of weeks. Have a fantastic, fantastic day.